0: Welcome back to the Own Your Potential podcast, where you'll hear stories from leaders across the globe about how they've taken control of their career growth and lessons on how you can too. I'm Peter Sherba, and today I have the extreme pleasure of sitting down with Abby Godet, the Chief Experience Officer at Poobal's Sadia. Abby, welcome to the podcast. Very excited to have you. I've been looking forward to this one for a while. Why don't we just jump right into it? Can you take us through your career journey leading up to today?
1: Sure. Hi, Peter. Thanks very much. And I'm excited that we finally found the time to do this. So uh, definitely very much appreciate it. Um, Career journey uh, makes it sound very long. uh, And I guess it is a little bit longer than uh, somebody at at the beginning of their career. But, you know, I would never have imagined in a million years that I would have ended up in a role like the one that I occupy today or at least I wouldn't have imagined it at the beginning of my career. So I w- many people know that I studied anthropology, cultural anthropology in oh, school. Cool. Yeah, it was. I loved it. I really really loved it. It was the first academic study that I was just completely passionate about and I threw myself into it and and I really did well in those courses and I thought okay, well, you should do something you love and do something you do well at. But then when I graduated, I realized that back when I graduated, I had in no way actually prepared myself for a job. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, And that was sort of typical of, of liberal arts degrees um, right. at that time. You know, we, I don't think I went to school so much to prepare myself for a career as I did to just learn and, and, and enrich myself. And that was sort of the idea but I also was very mindful of the fact that that I needed to work and I needed right. to get a job, ASAP. So I immediately moved to San Francisco because I thought, okay, well, that's where I want to live and, and that's the the kind of you know environment I want to be in. And then I took stock of what is it that I know how to do. And I wasn't thinking so much about anthropology because, you know, my my context of anthropology was, you know, going and, and, and studying West African weaving traditions or something and yeah. <laughs> I wrote my thesis on the material culture of uh, West African uh, cultures and and how women's roles in society were impacted by the onset of industrialization. And, you know, that's not something you just go get a job in. Um, But it was something that made me acutely attuned to product development and craft and making things. And and I realized I, I did some analysis myself. I said, well, what was it that really fascinated me about that? And I realized it was the study of people in their everyday context. And it was the um, understanding of the things that they make and that they create to reproduce their daily lives. So I found myself really fascinated by everyday objects and why they were relevant to us in our lives. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, I got a job at Williams-Sonoma. And for those in North America, you probably know Williams-Sonoma well, um, it's a, the largest gourmet retailer. Um, Right. Company and they at the time had about a thousand stores, um, and I was working for the product development department. And it was amazing for me because I started to learn, you know, how you know product development worked and how people would interact with factories and manufacturers and and how they would go about, you know, identifying the trends that, and and understanding people's needs. And it was it was sort of a, a crash course for me on product development, and so. I I decided I wanted to go back to school and and take industrial design courses. So I did that. um, And, and I was probably halfway through a master's in industrial design. And I realized, okay, I'm probably not going to grow up to be, you know, a full fledged industrial designer, but I love product development. I love research. I love, you know, understanding people. And I, I realized that kind of that design research was, and, and design strategy was a little bit more my angle. And so um, after San Francisco for a number of years, I decided that I needed to take a, a little bit of a, a break and go on what I called my product safari. And I got around <laughs> the world ticket and I went, uh, spent six months in India and six months in Southeast Asia, visiting all sorts of different places <laughs> where different, you know, people made different kinds of specialized products. And I I had developed quite a network of people through William sonoma and some other manufacturers I'd gotten to know. And so I had a nice network and I had a really good plan of like where I was going to go and who I was going to meet. And, and it was going to be very business-like, right? And, yeah. and it turned out to be probably a third business-like and a third just an amazing trip across Asia, which I have... Yeah, I've always been incredibly glad that I invested in myself that way and took that time. And yeah. when I was in India last week visiting our or two weeks ago, I guess, visiting our team in India. They were all amazed at all the different places i had been in India right. <laughs> that, that a lot of Indians hadn't even been to. So that was that was really a, yeah, a trip of a lifetime. But but after that, I, I knew I needed to get serious and start to really explore this product development um, dream. And so I moved to New York and I immediately got a job. I was incredibly lucky. I literally immediately the first week got a job at Smart Design. And Smart Design is a pretty well-known product design firm uh, with an it was at that time only in New York. And started working with them on how to develop a bigger strategy for how they could start to expand what they meant in the world because they are famous for designing the OXO Good Grips products. So right. those all the kitchen tools with the big fat black rubber handles. And my background from William sonoma kind of made for a very nice, warm connection into smart design. But I, I knew that they could do so much more. So we started looking at the role that technology was playing and the role that software was starting to play. And, and we, we realized we needed to invest in developing what at the time we called an interaction design practice. And we were growing right. our, our design research practice and I, after a while, I became a partner there and helped them open up their San Francisco office. So I moved out to San Francisco because I knew that for smart design to really be taken seriously in the world of technology and software, we needed to be on the West coast. So, and, and coincidentally at that time, I had met my future husband who was a product designer and, um, had been working at IDEO and we, uh, okay. We kind of talked him into coming over to smart design so that we weren't competitors. <laughs> 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 so that was nice. It was all in the family. Yeah. Moved out, moved out to Silicon Valley and opened up uh, the smart design studio there. And, and it was a great story. It really was a great story because smart design was the company that was known for creating amazing everyday objects that really were built on the principles of universal design. And I don't know if you're familiar with universal design, but it's the idea that when you're designing an experience, you should take into account the needs of the people on the fringes of the ability curve. So people who are, you know, either um, less abled or people who are, let's say, super abled. And if you think about their needs in addition to the needs of the mainstream, and you design a solution that then encompasses all their needs as much as possible, you essentially you, you, you essentially enlarge the the sphere of people who could consider themselves to be in that normal you know I'm saying I'm using air quotes you can't see that on a podcast but because yeah. pe- people don't want to feel stigmatized they don't want to feel that right. they're they're using you know a special affordance they want to feel like they're part of you know the 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 mainstream experience and so by thinking about these people on the fringes and the example was the Oxo Good Grips kitchen tools where you know they were made with big fat oval-shaped black rubber handles and they looked really cool and they're in the museum of modern art for a reason cuz they're beautiful but they were designed in that way because they made it easier for people with arthritis to use an right. everyday kitchen object where the previous tools were so poorly designed that they were painful for people with arthritis to use so but you don't look at that product and think oh that was designed for people with a handicap you look right. at it say that's beautiful and it had a six. Yeah, it was like six hundred percent more expensive than anything else that had been on the market. So it was a great business story too. And to this day, it's one of the best design and business stories. Um, but the reason why, sort of getting back to the career trajectory thing, the reason why it was such a good fit for us to go out to Silicon Valley at the time is that all the design organizations in Silicon Valley were really kind of more technology first, you know. And they they had, already, they had become so entrenched in the Silicon Valley technology world, they weren't really talking about consumers or everyday people. Mm. And so we showed up on the scene there and said, look, we're the people that design amazing kitchen tools and blenders and toasters. So we understand people. We understand everyday objects. We understand how people live their normal life. Trust us to design a technology experience that consumers will understand. And that really resonated with companies like Microsoft and HP and Cisco, where they said, you know what, actually, yeah, let's try something different. Yeah. Um, And from there, I think after a few years, my husband and I decided we wanted to go to the Netherlands because he's Dutch. And uh, we moved to the Netherlands to work for Philips Design because he had previously worked there. And he said, come on, the the chief design officer at the time, Stefano Marzano said, hey, I'll hire you both. And for him, it was a great deal. One move. (laughs) Yeah. two senior executives. (laughs) And, um, so a two for one. Um, and we moved over there and we, we tried that for, uh, about a year and a half and I loved it. I thought it was really, really fun. My husband wasn't as happy with his particular role at the time, even though he really loved Phillips. So he, uh, got swept away by Microsoft. We moved to Seattle. I joined frog design because I absolutely adored Doreen Lorenzo and the team that she had built there. And and I had four amazing years working for Frog, leading all their business for AT&T for a number of years and and moved out to the Netherlands with Frog. Had a great time because we decided ultimately we wanted to raise our kids in the Netherlands. So we moved back with Frog. And then I joined after a couple of years. It was clear that Frog was probably going to close their Amsterdam office. And I thought, okay. And, uh, the new chief design officer for Phillips, um, we, we struck up a great conversation. He offered me a really nice opportunity. So I joined Phillips again and, uh, spent five years there learning so much. I can't even tell you. It was, I think for everybody who's been on the consulting side, their career, they really need to spend time also in industry to understand what things are really like when our clients, what kinds of stresses and challenges our clients are really up to. Yeah, And then from there, after five years, I thought, okay, well, I am really at the heart a consultant. So I joined Deloitte and I became a partner at Deloitte. And that was also an amazing learning experience. And I'm extremely grateful to Deloitte. But I I ultimately felt that the, uh, the value proposition of what Sapient has in the market was really the perfect fit for me. And so when Nigel and I started talking, it just seemed like the perfect fit to come here. And I think uh, you can count on seeing me around these halls for for many years to come. Amazing. And, and very excited to, to hear that. But so much
0: I want to kind of dive into across that, you know, uh, career journey that that really piqued my interest. And I want to start all the way back around kind of your, your initial foray into education with anthropology. And I, I think what you talked about uh, or how you described the choice to go into the anthropology about not being to Pursue a career immediately after. It wasn't a decision made about what job you were going to get after the fact, but rather it was where you found your interest and then found your passion and simply love to learn and enrich yourself in that topic. I think that's a really interesting contrast to, for example, how I made my education decision in university where I went to University of Waterloo here in Canada, which is known for its co-op program globally. And in my head, I understood it as oh, I, I get to make money, at pretty good money, and get real-world experience with Fortune 500 companies across my university career, and then it's there's a 99% higher rate coming out of my b- bachelor's. I'm like, that makes just total sense. Did I absolutely love what I was learning day-to-day? I absolutely did not, right? <laughs> and so that is a, a, an extreme contrast to how you described your educational experience. So I wonder, as you then progressed into your working career, And, you know, you know, the idea of a learning mindset, did you balance the idea of simply learning what you thought was interesting and you loved with what you thought was going to progress your career? Or did you kind of sway in one direction more than the other as you looked for new learning opportunities?
1: I I think I kind of kept oscillating back and forth. And and more often than not, they were the same thing. So I think I've been very lucky, but I think also if I think about what's my superpower, if I have one, I think it's, it's something around kind of pattern recognition and triangulation. So I think what I really love doing and what I, th- I feel like I'm pretty good at is connecting the dots between things that other people may not see as related, but I find a relation. And that I think brings new thinking to topics. And that's why, for instance, I look back on my choice to pursue anthropology. And I think it was actually in hindsight great choice for my career because design research and ethnography and developing powerful insights is such a core backbone of our industry. Right. And that's where I came from. So that's allowed me to kind of triangulate between insights and product opportunities and service opportunities and business growth opportunities.
0: Absolutely. And, and even as you describe what specifically, let's say you even did your thesis on, um, and the idea of understanding, you know, the making of everyday items, right, and then immediately being able to parlay that into working with a brand like Williams Sonoma, like that triangulation, that connection, that must have been a really validating and satisfying thing to think, oh, look at this, this distinct education opportunity that maybe wasn't going to translate into career now actually directly applies and sets me apart. Uh, from my peers inside my profession, was that something that you were kind of
1: realizing in the moment? I think in the moment, I didn't. If I'm really honest, back in my early 20s, I didn't. By the time I got to smart design, I got it. I, I understood, like by by sort of crossing over that that you know decision of like, okay, this is the industry that makes the most sense because it's where I can pursue my passion and it's where my background makes sense and it's where I fit really well like then all the pieces fit together and I got it up until that point, I'd say it was instinct. Oh, oh, interesting. And I think, you know, that topic has come up a
0: couple of times on the podcast on, you know, listening to your gut, right. Ultimately. And if it does feel right, then there's something to be said to, to paying attention to that. Um, So I I think that that's validating to hear that once again, from someone who's clearly found success in their career. Um, But then so you work for a couple of years at William sonoma and then you depart for like a really extended trip. Now, that often you hear that people do that coming out of undergrad uh, or out of their educational experience. It's interesting to hear that as kind of a break in your working experience. But did doing that after having worked for a couple of years maybe add to kind of the perspective that you traveled with uh, in a different way than someone just coming fresh out of school would have?
1: Completely. Absolutely. I think if I had taken that trip when I was, you know, 21 and just out of school, it probably would have been just one long, endless summer night on a beach, you know, (laughs) it would have been been very different. Um, I think it gave me kind of a purpose and it gave me a way of framing the experiences I wanted to have because I can also say now from experience, you know, traveling with a backpack throughout India and Southeast Asia, it, it's it can be quite aimless, lovely, but aimless, you know, yeah. and then you, your experiences are always going to be about the culture and the people you met. But now, even more so, I had an understanding of, you know, the kind of industry I wanted to be in and the kind of impact I wanted to make.
0: So what I'm curious then is now, you know, you find yourself in, in obviously executive leadership positions. When you look at evaluating people to join your team, do you look, you know, positively and fondly on breaks in people's careers that are, are listed as travel is, and, uh, you know, for the listeners, I'm, there's just myself included. There's plenty of people who dream about, let me take a year off of my life, right? And just go off and see the world and change my perspective. Is that something that in your opinion, when you see that is a big plus?
1: I I think it depends on the person and how they frame it and what they got out of it. But I definitely see it as um, neutral to positive, right? It, it, It certainly wouldn't make me think poorly of anyone. I think if people need to take the time when they can take the time. Interestingly enough, I met a lot of people who were at the time also in their 40s and 50s doing the same thing, which I thought was really exciting as well. I mean, this is not something that you can do just as a younger person. I might have been older than the average, you know, graduate, but uh, there were plenty of people older than me and people who had even done it with their wife and kid, you know, take a year off. And so I think that we need to treat our lives and our careers like a marathon and not a sprint. And you need to understand that each stage brings special learning and insight and you need to take your time with it. Be patient and take everything that life has to offer as you go. Absolutely. Um, And so, you know, following that, obviously, uh, you, you returned to kind of
0: education for industrial design, parlayed that into your opportunity with, uh, with smart design. Um, And, and then there, after doing kind of product design, you also made the business case for that move to San Francisco. Maybe... Talk a little bit about how you were able to, to make that case. You know, what was the story that you told? Because obviously you felt the need to move into that space to be taken more seriously in the technology design space. But was that, you know, a controversial decision uh, or, or, or kind of point of view at the time? And, you know, for people out there who are listening, that also have maybe a big idea that they're trying to convince their organization of that that might be risky, that might have a large payoff or opportunity how do how do you make that sort of business case and convince leadership to to make a decision like that?
1: Well, how I did it then is probably different than I would do it now okay. so I, I had been trying somewhat with with like only moderate success um, to convince my you know colleagues to expand to San Francisco, but they were fairly risk averse um, right and so ultimately, uh, I had to quit and just move out there. <laughs> <laughs> And three months later, they hired me back and we had an office in San Francisco. So wow. <laughs> this is a little known story. Um, but, you know, honestly, my my heart was really with smart design and and I love those guys. And even today, I think they do some beautiful work. Um, and. I think that they just needed also at that time to, like, see that it could work. And honestly, the year I did it was really a dangerous year to do it, because that was the year of the dot bomb kind of, <laughs> it was like, what is it? 2000, 2001. And down, we, we opened up an office on Folsom street and there was literally like practically tumbleweed, you know, rolling down Folsom street. Yeah. Like everybody was closing their doors. There was no business to be had. We were sitting around on like cardboard boxes, uh, you know, <laughs> and, and Honestly, like the the guys from the New York office were about to call us up and say, like, look, we're going to have to pull the plug on this glorious experiment. And at that very moment, practically, like to the day, we got a call from a major West Coast software company that we all know, giving us our first big project and that saved the office. (laughs) Again, I don't think that business case was amazing. I think that now... It's so much easier to understand how you need to build a multi-stakeholder case to be able to bring people together to a collective decision that they feel good about and they understand the risks and they understand the upside. I've done a lot of thinking over the years on how we need to really change the way people assess risk if we want to innovate, if we want to take chances. And so that's been a lot of what my background work has been about, is understanding how with, to, for innovation to thrive, how you have to really change the way organizations think about risk.
0: Yeah. I find that very interesting. And and before I fully jump into that topic, I just want to explore this a little bit further because that's an incredible vote of confidence in yourself to say, I believe so deeply in the fact that there's huge opportunity in this place, that if we can't agree on that, I'm just going to have, I'm going to have to step away and, and go there. So what, I mean, it, it I think you said three months later, they, they kind of hired you back and then started an office there. So what did, what did that exchange in conversation look like? Uh, I just, I feel like I have to hear a little bit more about that.
1: Uh, it's an interesting story and we can, we can, I can share that one with you over a beer sometime. <laughs> okay, fantastic. Fantastic. Fair enough.
0: But, um, for, so from there, right. Like, uh, I think, uh, the the topic of innovation and, and risk assessment to drive innovation right how, how did um i guess in product design right there's designing products but that doesn't necessarily always mean innovating and pushing like the space that a product is being designed forwards so you know how how do you balance for example simply designing the best possible product to do its task versus then also balancing an opportunity to push the space of product or the industry of product
1: lives in forwards. And, and when do you kind of lean into one more than the other? Well, I think that's actually one of the biggest lessons that every young designer needs to learn when they're trying to under, especially in consulting or, or even in industry, when they're, when they're trying to support the business. Um, So in consulting, you're trying to support a client in industry, you're trying to support the business that you, that you are a part of. And when I see people get it wrong, it's when they've misjudged, the kind of tolerance and need for innovation in the space. Right. So they've like maybe tried to really overshoot and go super innovative and that wasn't the need. Um, so, so understanding where the appetite and tolerance and need is for innovation is the first job. So part of that is what's the business need. First of all, like what, what is, um, what does that, that competitive landscape look like? What does that market look like? How mature is it? You know, what are the, um, known competitors doing and, and you know do we see untapped need to create something that's pushing the boundaries even further than than where the existing kind of product sets are today. So the other is really going deep into you insights around the users. You know, and that can be true in a B2B environment, a B2C environment, healthcare, it doesn't matter. Any industry will will have the same requirements. It's how deeply do you understand the needs in the market, and not just the needs that people tell you, but the needs that you can observe based on deeper insights and, and, and proper synthesis. And I think that's also where people kind of go wrong a lot of times: is they they kind of do the research and they check the boxes. Done the research? Yep, great. But they haven't synthesized what they've learned. They they have observations, but they don't have true insights. And true insights lead you to innovation. But only when you properly kind of underpin underpin the need for innovation, like that there is real need. Right. Should you be investing in that? So I think that's where, yeah, I'm not sure I'm answering your question exactly right. But I think that's where the the difference is, is you don't always have to innovate. Right. But, you know, in, in our team, we clearly differentiate between innovation and product development and product design, right? So we do product and service design for improving experiences that already exist. Right. And we innovate in areas that will create new sources of value for clients. And those are related, but they're two different things.
0: Yeah, I think that's a really interesting distinction uh, and one that's probably transferable you know, outside of just the design, like the experience design industry, but just anywhere really. And um, I find that it is a pretty poignant articulation of, of, you know, particularly when you're trying to convince an organization to accept some amount of risk uh, to innovate, let's say, identifying what that need state is, and maybe even quantifying that, probably helps make that business case considerably simpler to, or easier to digest and accept, right? And 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 yeah, I think the idea of knowing when, for example, we are simply improving experience versus when we have to be driving it forward and let's say transforming it. Um, is an important distinction and one that probably would help clear a lot of um, ambiguity, let's say, in the design process or innovation process. I I like that quite a bit.
1: And if I can add one more thing to that, um, I think that innovation isn't just that you've identified an unmet need that is a very real human or commercial need, right? So maybe you've identified that need and it's very real and everyone concurs that that need exists, right? But there's no commercial path to value you're in dangerous territory. So innovation, this is, and I believe this very firmly, innovation is not just about the human experience of the new product or service. Innovation is about that intersection between the viability, the commercial viability, the human need and and desirability of that experience, and the technical feasibility of it. That's why our speed capabilities are actually so important that we think of those things together. Because my team's name is the experience team, but we don't deliver experiences alone. We deliver it together with the other capabilities. And that intersection, if you can imagine, you know, the, the classic Venn diagram, that's where innovation can occur when those things are in balance and working together like a well-oiled machine. Yeah, I mean, that makes total sense, right?
0: Um, you know, and uh, um, for those, for example, who are listening, who, who don't know what we're referencing with regards to speed at PS, we have, you know, strategy Product experience, engineering and data as our five core pillars of kind of delivery and capability. And, and, and so obviously you being the ex- global experience leader. Um, you know, I, I think it's really interesting to talk about that, that intersection of all of those is where you have, you know, opportunity for innovation to be bred, but the, you know, making sure it's grounded, not only in addressing untapped need, but commercial viability and then also technical feasibility. Obviously that makes absolute sense. it makes absolute sense, whether you're bringing innovation to to the table or even just uh, any any product or or kind of service to the table. Right. It's a consideration. And so, yeah, I I think that makes absolute sense. And zeroing in on your time at Philips, obviously, that being time spent that you spent in industry or on client side. Maybe contrast how driving innovation in an organization like that is different than when you're a consultant, when companies are actually coming to you for innovation. So innovation and design and improvement and optimization is like the mandate that's expected of you as a consultant, but driving that inside of an organization on industry side, how is that different? And maybe talk about how you're able to thrive in both environments. What, What are consistent behaviors that drive success?
1: Well, being highly collaborative is critical in both cases. So, and 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 having a very strong appetite to embrace multidisciplinary teams and invest the time and energy to be able to learn to speak each other's languages is incredibly important. Um, I think doing it in industry at Philips, who places a premium on innovation, you know, of all the companies I know, Philips, you know, prides itself on its innovation capabilities. I'd say there you really understand what it takes to deliver innovation. Right, so it's not just right. the idea and it's not just, you know, ending with a prototype or a lovely PowerPoint deck or even a pilot. It's about getting it to scale in market, debugging it, figuring out how to fix things when things go wrong, figuring out how to deal with issues in quality or in marketing. Every part of that end-to-end value chain needs to be addressed. And what I loved about the way Philips approaches these things is it is very multidisciplinary and it is an end-to-end approach. So that more than anything else you know, teaches you what it takes to deliver innovation into the market. I remember when I was at Frog Design and, and it was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed my time there. There was um, a time when we made t-shirts uh, for all the the folks in the the design team and the t-shirt said, we make blank real. And you could fill in the blank with whatever you want, you know, software or experiences or, you know, soft, anything, right? So you could fill in the blank and it was meant to be like filled in with a Sharpie on the t-shirt. So we make blank real. And, and they were very, very kind of passionate about how they made things real. And when I went to Phillips, I realized in hindsight, they didn't make it real, they advanced it, significantly advanced things, but they didn't make it real. Making it real is really getting it to the market and getting it in people's hands in a quality manner. And that's what making it real is. And so you you'll never experience that if you if you don't also spend some time. And you can do that, luckily, like at, at Publicis Sapient, you can do that with long-term engagements on certain, with certain clients. You right. can make things real. But with most consultancies that end in a you know 12-week 12 12 program and here's the idea or here's the prototype or here's the the plan for your pilot, that's not making it real. So I think that's where the real learning happens and everyone should go through that at least once.
0: Yeah, I, I like that a lot. And now you actually kind of answered the question I was going to jump to is this idea of like, is, is there value in everyone in their career balancing if, for example, they're in a consulting space, balancing um, their career with spending some time on the industry side to to see across a longer period of time what it means to actually own and drive something through to completion and scale and adoption, right? Um, and and I agree wholeheartedly that at Publicis Sapient those kind of opportunities do exist. Because myself, you know, across nine years here, have had much shorter stints that were like very much strategy focused, put together a roadmap of use cases, but then also much longer two to three year engagements. I find myself now on an account, you know, just over two years in and, and it is, you know, at scale activation of all of the ideas you thought of in those first 12 to 16 weeks, let's say at the engagement. And it is a very, different experience taking it through to this stage that I agree is of enormous value to understand the bigger picture and kind of the, the full end to end process.
1: And and I think that's the message and you just said it. Um, I don't think people have to work in industry to get that experience. I think that, you know, at a place like public sapient, you can do both. I think the, the point is sticking with something long enough through the cycles to be able to understand what get making it real really looks like. And, you know, there's a the phrase they use a lot in the U S around, you know, eating your own dog food. Yeah, it's yeah. also, I, I give this, this advice to a lot of, um, young designers and, and, and experienced professionals that come out of school and they want to focus kind of purely very often. They want to focus on just that front end conceptualization and sort of that discover and define phase. And I tell them, I am like, that's great. But you'll never know if you're any good at that if you don't take a few cycles, seeing your ideas all the way through and delivering it, because you'll never know how you problem solve. You know, my my husband's a product designer, an industrial designer. And one of the things that makes him an amazing designer is his ability also to understand exactly how everything gets manufactured. Right. So you can't be an industrial designer without also understanding, you know, mold flow and how to design all the case parts so that they can actually be extracted from the mold There was a design firm that I will not name who used to be famous for like making designs that were really beautiful, but they came in 15 part molds, which were super expensive for the clients to produce. That's the kind of stuff that like if you don't know how things are made real, you can't be great at conceptualizing the solutions to the problems. And I think that's where I maybe you know people might say I'm I'm almost too practical about that, but I think it's like go through those cycles, learn yeah. everything you can about the full value chain.
0: So I'm curious then on your opinion on the idea of, and this is you know I, I I've applied this to a couple of different topics, this this kind of thinking. But let's use an MBA uh, education for example. You know there are many people who go straight out of an undergrad into an MBA, who's not you know maybe an in uh, um, a uh, an internship or two under their belt. Right. I I never understood that. Right. I, I, in terms of, 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 of that condensed education, uh, particularly with the MBA being one that's supposed to change your perspective on how to lead and manage and, um, you know, m- make impact inside of an organization when you've never had that experience at all, even a failed one or successful one, um, to, to have that perspective on how to make those things better or do better. And in the same way, the idea of people going straight from, let's say, school into like strategy roles, right? And, and never having done execution. I've always been challenged by that. And kind of the path I've looked to go down in my own career is like start in kind of the more technical and implementation and then, you know, execution phases and bubble your way up to strategy where you enter that strategic phase of a career with perspective and experience. And I wonder if you echo that sentiment that that there's enormous value in that, because I I always struggled how someone could just be in just strategy their whole life, let's say.
1: Yeah. <laughs> i sorry i agree i i i would say ninety nine point nine percent agree I've seen a few exceptions where you know particularly the very analytical side of strategy um you know very numbers driven analytical quantitative side of strategy i I've seen some successful kind of career paths coming straight from school and going into that and being trained and indoctrinated in the method of the 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 team that they've joined and just being really smart and taking that experience for all it's worth and turning it into something where they have some, some real authority. Yeah. Um, but for the most part, I'd say, yeah, what you said of, of like taking some time, get some real world experience, then going back and getting a master's in something that excites you or where that sharpens your, you know, marketability, I think is almost always a better idea. And, and when you see, you know, a young person with zero, street smarts and real life experience standing, you know, they're trying to convince, you know, a stakeholder of doing something. And then you see someone else who's, who's developed some street smarts and, you know, some, some experience in the real world. In addition to their academic life, you usually see a difference. It's not always, sometimes, like I said, people can be gifted and they can just take their educational careers and make something amazing out of it. So there's no hard, fast rule, but I guess I would tend to say, again going back with that marathon you know go get some experience yeah. and start to piece things together and is, is, is And street smarts make a big difference, I think, in in the way people approach their careers.
0: <laughs> I, I love to hear that. I love to hear that um, because it certainly validates some of the decisions I've made in my own career, um, which, well, is always, do that. <laughs> yeah, which is always super, super valuable for me. Now, I will I'll love to um, maybe pivot to, to one last question, because now it's kind of you. You step into your role as chief experience officer at Publicis Sapien, and um, you know, there's enormous enthusiasm for, for for you at the organization, having joined us and leading the experience space and kind of the different capabilities that have now kind of entered and consolidated into experience, our capability. I'm very curious, kind of what is your vision for how you expand and grow and, uh, imp- and I guess, evolve our experience practice over the next couple of years? I'm very curious to kind of hear about that as a parting thought.
1: Great. Um, yeah, it's a good question couple of things come to mind um first of all i i was thrilled with the the quality and and the the level of expertise that i found in the team when i joined so it's great feeling entering an organization being able to get started right away um we do need to and what we are doing right now is is enhancing and deepening our industry expertise across a few axes if, across a few industry vectors because um you know we we haven't invested enough in certain industry expertise from an experience perspective we've, we've developed it from our industry teams and maybe our engineering teams our experience teams need to catch up a little bit there there's a couple where we're already really strong but a couple where we need to we need to step up and so we've had a lot of excitement in the recruitment market of of, of attracting people to this because we do actually offer such a unique and interesting opportunity for that um, we're also, uh, you probably noticed we created a, 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 specialized craft around research and insights that yeah. we're planning on scaling globally. We've also kind of doubled down on service design in addition to the, the suite of kind of experience design skills and crafts that we've been growing and developing over the years and having our, our customer experience and innovation consulting team joining together right. with our experience design team is a really important step to kind of you know, strengthen the overall kind of end to end proposition. Um, And finally, I'm working very closely with the other leaders and delivery leaders. So the capability leaders in engineering and in um, product and strategy to really look at how we do the best job possible of bringing together um, our capabilities across, you know, what I referred to as those speed capabilities, because the integration of our capabilities is really what will set us apart because everybody knows they need to do this. Every other consultancy knows they need to do this. But in most consultancies, there's a little bit of a, a roadblock towards being able, you know, there's a little bit of siloed thinking still and a little difficulty being able to bring these these things together seamlessly. Right. So if you, if you show up to a client and the client can actually tell, oh, that's the engineering person, that's the product person, that's the experience person then in in some ways you've you've a little bit failed at your collaboration model because you, you should be seamlessly connected enough that while you bring the depth of expertise in your capability, when you show up at a client's you know doorstep, you're one team. Right. And so I think that's the opportunity that I discussed with our CEO, Nigel, and, and he's very passionate about this too, of being able to really unite these capabilities into one kind of powerful force that can think end to end about clients digital yeah. business transformation problems. And and only by doing that do we succeed. So everything I'm planning is is really in service of that goal.
0: That's very exciting. And I I love the articulation of you have failed a little bit if you can tell who belongs to which capability just on the surface, right? And I think that that's particularly exciting to me and and validating this of uh, this idea that you know if you're able to see the end to end big picture and understand how everything integrates together and speak the language of the different capabilities, which kind of, which would then kind of form you into this kind of united team where everyone kind of can 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 talk the talk and, and also walk the walk. I think is you know, super powerful. And, and I'm very excited to see that come to life. And, and I think it does certainly set us apart when when we're, um, you know, embodying exactly what we're preaching as, as an organization. So, you know, um, Abby, I, I'm, I'm super excited to see how everything evolves and how you make an enormous impact at the organization and for our clients. And and, and just thank you again for your time today and being willing to come on the podcast. What an amazing conversation.
1: And I look forward to chatting again in the future. Oh, thank you so much. It was really, it was really fun. So I'm glad we got to do it. And I'll talk to you again soon.